All right, this is coming in on the top ten on the show. We have singer, songwriter, and drummer extraordinaire Matt North. Matt has worked with many: Mariah McKee, Blondie Chaplin, The Clutter Family. Peter Case, Hail the Size, or just to name a few. Not only has Matt worked with a lot of other musicians, but he's worked with a lot of other writers in a lot of different writing styles, such as screenplay writing and hanging out with comedians such as Patton Oswald and Mitch Hedberg and learning comedic writing. Matt also starred in the film Dirty Pictures alongside James Wood and has the whole actor's insight. Matt has taken all these writing performance experiences and has put it to its own work now. He has a solo project, self-titled Matt North, and he has two albums out. The newest one, Bullies in the Backyard. We're going to listen to the track The Last Angry Man off Bullies in the Backyard.
Matt North, The Last Angry Man off Bullies in the Backyard. I love that track. It gives me a numbers bands vibes. Uh, we talk about it a little bit in our conversation. Um, yeah, so this was a fun chat, and it was uh, very inspiring. There's a lot of songwriting approaches I've never thought of, or at least in the context of how we, or how he, how Matt uh, approaches it. So this was very inspiring for myself. I hope you guys find it the same. Before we get into it, if you can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on one of the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to cool guests and sharing those insights with you. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Matt North. Right, right. And especially kids with learning differences, I find it's fascinating as an educator. I teach private drum lessons. I've always had some drum students here and there. It's fascinating just how they perceive and interpret the instrument differently. Yeah. And I think it influences, influences the way they play and, and the kind of music they make. You know, uh, you know, it's, it's just really... That, that to me has always been a fascinating thing as I've been playing the drums since I was nine or 10 years old. And over the years, whatever instrument one plays, I really think, you know, who you are, your personality, it has its ways of filtering into yeah. the sounds and the music you make on your instrument, you know? Definitely. And uh, yeah, you know, so that's just a never ending, fascinating outcome. Well, the kind of start off, what, what are some of those like intricate, uh, like weird, weird ways that you've seen drums translate with some of your students? Like what's like some of the most unique ways that you're like, Oh, you think of it like uh, mnemonic yeah. devices or, or what's a, what's one that really stuck out? You know, it's, it's everybody, first of all, everybody's different. Everybody learns differently. Uh, and as a, as a teacher, when I'm working with a student on the drums, I have my library of skills that I believe everyone who wants to play the drums should know. And it'd be irresponsible as a teacher not to hand over certain, I'll call them uh, foundational skills yeah. that will help any musician, regardless of how they learn, launch into becoming someone who makes their own sounds is, you know, I, I really long-term goal with any drum student of mine. Uh, I'm interested in their taste. And the first discussion we have, you know, or, you know, what, what are songs that you love? I never ask a student, what drummers do you love? Cause you'll often hear about a drummer that is someone they're fascinated with with gymnastic and athletic skills the drummer might be able to do, but they don't talk about the songs. And, and um, I'm really interested in helping any drummer who takes a lesson from me into becoming a musician who's a part of a bigger picture, who's contributing to which, you know, whether it's, you want to call it the band or the song, because the ultimate goal is to play with other human beings instead of become a, instead of, which is an, an easy trap to fall into where none of us are immune from becoming a practice room rock star. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're truly curious about your instrument and you love music, then it's a good thing. You can find yourself, you just spent six or seven hours alone in a room developing your skills on the instrument. And that's all great. But I always like to nudge people say, we'll never forget our goal is to get out of the practice room and, either on stage with other people in a practice room with a band or in a studio. Um, but, um, 
you know, I, I've just seen drummers either learn, my students have learned this instrument, sometimes mathematically, they've really responded to the math and the architecture of music and how we count it out. Then I've had other students who are math disabled and we're just not gonna get anywhere if I'm telling them about, you know, how to mix up 16th notes, eighth notes, what a dotted quarter note means, all that stuff. Uh, you can just see the goldfish swimming from one eye to the next <laughs> eye. They completely yeah. out. So those are learners. Those are learners who I find I have to get it into their ear mm. first before I get it into their brain. It's, it's a step-by-step thing, and it, and, and it goes individually one at a time. I've had students who are gifted in math. And eventually they're running circles around me with discussing the architecture of, of, of music. But uh, the, the bottom line is we're all going to one place and that's to play a song. And, you know, to make the song work the best we can. And I guess my attitude about teaching anyone drums, which that's my core instrument, is the same thing as when I record my own songs or when I'm working as a session drummer, helping another songwriter, I always say, I don't, I don't care what we have to go through. All I care about is what we have when we're done. I don't care if I have to do 20 takes. I don't care if I do 10 takes and we realize, and this has happened before sometimes, you know, I can think of another drummer who would do better than me. Who's more appropriate for the vibe we're going for. Uh, on one occasion I referred another drummer. I just said, Hey, you know, you've got material you've recorded with me, but you should call this guy. He plays completely different than me. His brain works completely different than me. And I think he's right for this song more than me. And so now I wasn't that kind of drummer when I was 20 years old, but <laughs> that was kind of maybe one of the most musically mature things <laughs> I, I, I've ever, I've ever done. I think I was in my late thirties or forties when I got to that point of where, you know, I was really comfortable uh, thinking about recording that way. Right. But, uh, you know, like I'm sure, as you know, it just, it really gets down to, uh, whether it's music or school or anything, basically learning in general, everyone comes to it in their own way. And as educators, we've got to take the time to try to understand who we're teaching, how they learn and what they need in order to learn those three things. Right. A hundred percent. And if not, it doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't it doesn't stick you know you're you're no. skipping the song you're, you're like it but and, th and that's and that's so important because it's so individually based you know and it, right school being the thing that deals with a lot of individuals it's hard that to t for I, I think for teachers or educators to find that or that time to do right. that um but to put a pin exactly. <laughs> to put a pin in what um in that well i find it it's it takes for any song i feel i feel like if i don't do like seven takes i didn't do it right like i never feel like the first take is ever uh -huh. ever good like i feel like you gotta get that grind in there you gotta like get stressed out about the song i don't know yeah. if that's healthy but personally recording well, i don't feel right it, if it's only one <laughs> interesting i mean that could just be your process you know yeah, um, sometimes 100%. you know and Whatever it takes to get a musician to a place of being relaxed is playing the song and not judging themselves. Right. If, if any, you know, if anybody, I've always said ever since 
I started learning Pro Tools and when Pro Tools and digital recording became the norm, I just remember having a thought of, man, anybody with the slightest inclination for obsessive compulsive disorder, this is not gonna be the most healthy software to be working with, man, because yeah. I, I grew up, I'm, I'm, I'm 52 years old, I grew up, my first studio job, we were recording to tape. We didn't have Pro Tools and it was expected of me to hit a take, you know, yeah. front to finish. And then I, I'll never forget, I was working in Los Angeles on a session and I played through the whole song and I was about to go into the third verse and I had a great idea of what I was going to do as a drummer in the third verse. And they stopped the recording. They said, okay, thanks. We're done. You, you can go home. And, and I went, well, I, and I thought maybe I did something wrong or am I getting fired? And they go, no, man, we got it. We're just going to take what you did in the second verse and fly it into the third verse. <laughs> and that, yeah. that was kind of one of my moments of thinking, okay, we're, we're going maybe in a bad direction. I was going to bring something you know, verse to verse as a song progresses, maybe you want a little variety, something a little different. And that was one of my moments of seeing, man, we're, some people are taking these skills into a direction of, they're forgetting about the human and the music, the music and the musical and the human side right. of this and being in the moment. Uh, but yeah, you know, um, to your statement about sometimes you got to get at least seven takes or a lengthy number of takes, it can be one or two ways. Maybe you've discovered this. Maybe you've discovered that you actually went back and listened to takes one and take two when maybe you're just thinking, well, I'm not warmed up or it can't possibly be the take. But in fact, there was something really interesting going on uh, because you were fresh to it and you were feeling your way. And this has happened to me mostly on my vocal takes. Frequently, I, I will think my vocals are not working. They're no good. I'm pitchy here. I didn't hit the... And then I'll go back and there was so much in the very first take uh, when I just didn't really know too much what I was doing. I wasn't thinking too much or I was just going for it and just getting, just trying to get it started. Sometimes there's something really interesting when your mind is in that space. Uh, but yeah, it's the goal for me is to always try to get to a place where I'm not judging myself and Sometimes it fun happens since I'm the drummer on all of my songs and my drummer, by the way, is really affordable. He doesn't charge me anything. <laughs> uh, I'll be listening to my takes on the drums as a vocalist, as the songwriter. And I'll be going, man, who's this? Why do he play that fill? We don't need that cymbal crash. Why do he do it? Then I'll go, Oh, the drummer was me, <laughs> you know, and I'll, I'll hear myself objectively. And, um, Sometimes I'll keep what I did. Sometimes I'll realize I really didn't think it through as the drummer. I could have done better, uh, you know, and I'll go back. And so it's been a, you know, real humbling learning process. Anytime they, the, they, they used to say, well, when we recorded the tape, we said the tape doesn't lie hmm. and it, it never does. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, but yeah, whether it's one take, seven takes or, 20 to 40 takes, you know, John Lennon sang twist and shout 42 times before George Martin said, we've got a take here. Yeah. You know, that they, they he, he really ran him through the ringer was for it? that. And look, look, look what they got. Right. Right. I think that's uh, the guy I work with. He's like, yeah, John Lennon did. He told me that story a few times and said, he like screwed yeah. up his voice to some point where he couldn't hit a note anymore or something. Yeah. It didn't help. 
<laughs> yeah. I guess, you know, it's interesting with vocal because coming from multiple instruments, right, and getting to hear the grand picture of things, but, like, uh, especially when you're recording vocals, it's like that first take is like you're just performing. And then the more you do right. do the vocal take, you're like, well, I didn't like how I said the word the in that first. You know, you yeah. start to get really um, looking at the tree, not the forest, with <laughs> especially sure. vocals yeah. if, you're, if they're not your main. Um, so when yeah. – uh, like, like at least when you start, right? When you start playing, whatever that thing is that gets you playing, that's where you feel comfortable. With for you, yeah. with drums, when did when did you start playing drums, right? And when did it become like a, um, the like the philosophy of playing for the uh for the band as opposed to the kind of flash? When did you always have that kind yeah. of uh insight that? Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> how that. I I would say I've all what I know now is that what attracted me to the drums was music, what attract and, and songs. Drums just happened to be the instrument that um, I succeeded at fast enough not to quit. I tried guitar. It, I couldn't get my head around it. Maybe my hands were too small. Maybe there was something going on where it just wasn't clicking, even though I was really attracted to it. I loved everything about guitar, uh, piano. I understand the theory and the architecture of key signatures and chords didn't really take to piano. I started playing the drums. I was nine years old. A friend up the street had a red sparkle Slingerland drum set in his garage and I'd ride my dirt bike by it every day. And it was just love at first sight. Yeah. It was this fascination. It was like being a five-year-old in a toy store and you see a star Wars doll and you got to have it. Yeah. It was that same feeling when I saw this drum set that close I had to play it, you know, and I became friends with this guy. I started playing, and all I can say is I progressed and quickly enough and understood the drums enough in a natural way to where I wanted to keep learning. I started taking lessons and uh, advanced pretty quickly. When I was about 13 years old, my drum teacher was passing along gigs to me that he was unavailable for or didn't want to play. I, I learned real quick how to read yeah. music. I could play blues and and jazz standards and I, I grew up playing little wedding receptions and mar, bar mitzvahs and small blues and jazz quartets quintets and uh can't put a price on what what that that gave me and, and just in those experiences i was always the kid playing with adults yeah so everyone you know was always coaching me and giving me pointers letting me know if i maybe straight out too far, did something a little too adventurous or just, but you know, it, I learned real quick. If I want them to hire me again, I, I maybe something that's different. I really, because I started working at a young age, I always viewed the drums as a vocation, just as much as a passion, just as much as a love for music. I was really trained to see this as a job and there's a way you have to play drums if they're ever going to hire you again. And that's when I learned it's not about me. It's not about impressing the audience. It's not about, hey, look what I can do. It's about, are the people on the dance floor out there dancing? Are they moving? And, and I learned a lot from playing drums live where I would, in a club or a whatever function I had a gig, I'd just look around the room and pay attention to, you know, are people moving? Are they bobbing their head? Are they tapping their feet? Are they on the dance floor? And if they're not, I just always felt like, well, I must be doing something wrong. What do I need to do to do to to 
to make that happen. It just became very interesting to me. But I did grow up as a drummer in the 80s when every concert I went to, to my memory, I just grew up assuming it was expected of me to play a big drum solo because there was just a time in the 80s where, and, and you know, maybe it started, you know, maybe it was started obviously in the big band era with, with you know, guys like Buddy Rich and, and Gene Krupa where the drum solo became a featured moment in a show. I think in rock and roll, um, probably Bonham, you know, and Zeppelin, where that was a show where people just marveled at what he could do on the drums and how musical he was and how powerful and thunderous he was. Um, I definitely wanted to be that. I was attracted to that. It was what I saw when I went to concerts. I, you know, of course, I, I saw Rush when I was in the sixth grade and Neil Peart's solo just, just blew my mind. Not necessarily in how technically impressive it was, but it was a drum solo that was musical in the sense that it had a very clear beginning, a middle, and an end. And I thought, you know, this was just what I would have to know how to do if I'm going to grow up and be a professional drummer. Uh, grew up and learned that's, that change. That was not what people were expecting. And I, I truly realized I don't have an honest impulse to have that much attention drawn to me as a drummer. And what I really enjoy are these guys like Ringo and Charlie Watts um, and how they support a song. I love Levon Helm uh, with the band. And I, re I re realized I enjoy drummers that do other things. I, I guess I point, I point to Neil Peart, even though I'm a very different drummer and the songs I'm writing are not prog rock. But what made an impression on me as a fifth or a sixth grade kid who loved the drums, when I'd hold the album and read the credits, it was fascinating that, oh, Neil Peart wrote all the lyrics for the band. And I liked Queen, and I noticed that Roger Taylor, their drummer, he was the secret weapon with high harmonies and had a great singing voice. I grew up loving Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And Stan Lynch is one of my favorite, most relaxed, feel grooving rock drummers. He always had that microphone on the on the boom mic that could come around. And so I just observed, oh, you know that that's also probably what's going to be expected of me. I should learn how to sing. I should, you know, be able to join in in a chorus. I always liked it when a drummer also sang. So I wanted to build that skill. Uh, but I would say it was you know, probably up into the 90s when I finally started working with songwriters. This is before I even had the notion of thinking I could write a song. I had experiences playing for songwriters who were, I was the first drummer to ever play on a song. Up until then, most drummers, we go into our practice room and we put headphones on and we jam along to John Bonham or Keith Moon or whatever albums that we are trying to model ourselves after. But I'd never been what I call the inaugural drummer, where someone sits down with a guitar and they go, here's my song, and that's all they got. They've yeah. never recorded it. They've never heard it with a bass player. They've never heard it with any other instrument. And, and I, I had these great experiences with some really great songwriters where I grew up in, in Champaign, Illinois. 
where I'd sit down with a, a guy with an acoustic guitar and, and try to find what's the appropriate groove to play under the lyrics and the melody they've created. And it was hard. And I realized all these years, yeah, I was a skilled drummer. I'm sure I was a good drummer, but I had no idea. But, but that was because I'd been mimicking albums. I had no idea what it meant to have someone give me a blank page and just a blueprint of here's the lyrics, here's the chords. What are you going to do on the drums? And it's, there's, no, there's no precedent that's been set. I'm not imitating Kenny Jones from Small Faces. I'm not imitating, you know. And then it got down to, oh, well, who am I? How am I going to sound? What am I going to do? And that was a whole new chapter. For, for being a drummer when that was probably the beginning as a long way to answer your question of when, when did this all start of being a drummer, thinking about the bigger picture and thinking about the song. It was definitely then when I was faced with a song that had no precedent, no drummer had touched it before me. And I was the first one, you know, it's, it's interesting. So, um, uh, the kind of like, uh, so what what you, what appealed to from to you about Neil Peart was this kind of like narrative of a drum solo, and then like this idea, yeah. right? Which is which is fascinating because usually if you're just listening, you're kind of lost in it. You're like up up up, it's over. You know what I mean? Like as yeah. unless you're like analyzing it, and like that takes some like going through, seeing how the crowd reacts to a thing, and seeing how a, a group works. Like that 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 insight from playing and watching the crowd. You're taking that and analyzing this arc of a of a drum like manic madness, and then like right. to be kind of presented with a blank page. It, it just I get these like a lot of these writing kind of like um, uh, thoughts. So did you? Because you did like you were writing at the time too, like for like uh, uh, gigs when you moved out to California and stuff, right? Right. And screenplays. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. With like, were you writing while you were like, or learning how to write? Because I know writing is a, you have a, f a family of writers from what I like yeah. uh, with your um, great uncle. Um, My great uncle, Jesse Stewart. Yeah. Right. So like, it was writing kind of always like a creative insight that was like uh, implemented. Yes. Uh, whether you know the song songwriting writing under that umbrella came years later. And in reflecting in hindsight, you know, how did this, you know, how did I get to this point of being able to do this? It all, everything I did up till now played into this. You know, my, my, uh, you mentioned my, my, my great uncle, Jesse Stewart. Uh, he was, he's a novelist and children's author from Eastern Kentucky. I, I grew up reading all of his books. Uh, just fascinated that I'm related to this guy. Well, that, that motivated me and made me curious and made me want to read. So I spent a lot of time reading his books as a kid. My mother was an English teacher and my English classes growing up. I mean, any child of an English teacher knows you, we never turn in a paper unless our secret editor at home <laughs> yeah. gives it the once over and talks me through. So in, in my home, education was important. Um, grammar was important. Being able to express myself in writing appropriately was important. Um, I got that from my mother. Um, Years later, you mentioned, yeah, when I went to San Francisco, I, I graduated from Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. Oh, no way. Nice. And I don't know if that's in the press release. I mean, I went to some, I went to like three different colleges and yeah. finally, finally got out and loved OU and 
uh, got a job at Mother Jones Magazine as a, a fact checker and research associate, which is, it involved writing. I wasn't one of the columnists. I didn't contribute. But I would comb through, uh, my job was to comb through what the writers submitted and do fact checking. And I learned a lot about structure and um, editing and how to clip away as much as you can and do you still have the same story. Uh, at that time, this was maybe the mid to late 90s, there was a big boom in independent film and a lot of cool movies were coming out, you know, like uh, Sling Blade and Swingers and Goodwill Hunting and all these uh, actor writers who were writing their own screenplay and making their own productions. And it was a real exciting time. I, in college, took a screenwriting class and became really interested in screenwriting and basically how to tell stories and studied, spent a lot of time studying, you know, what are the ingredients? If you think about it, like, like cooking or so, what are the ingredients that go into a well-told story? And spent a lot of time reading books on how to do that, reading books on how to write a script where the goal is for it to be shot into a, a feature film. How do you do that? What I didn't know at the time was all of those skills from studying film, they apply to writing a song. You know, it's, it's all storytelling. And now when you look at lyrics on a page, it doesn't look like a screenplay, but the job of a screenwriter is to write the sentences in a way where the reader is going to, uh, can imagine their own version of the movie. And hopefully, and I try to go through those checklists when I, uh, I spend a lot of time on my lyrics and writing and I, I, I don't record anything unless I'm happy with it and feel like it's going to work. Uh, I probably put a lot of tough, tough standards on myself, maybe more so than I should. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I want a listener to have moments where they're listening to the song and see their own pictures in their own mind based on one line I said or some way I was able to communicate something. Um, that's kind of maybe the most fun thing about releasing songs and letting other people listen to the music. Uh, at that point, it's not my song anymore. It, it belongs to whoever's hearing it. It belongs to how they interpret it and how it makes them feel. And that's kind of my favorite part of this, you know, cause I have my memory of why I wrote the song or what it means to me, but I feel it'd be, uh, highly improper to expect anyone to feel about it the way I do. It's fun to hear how something, impacts another person in their own way. Right. You know, so, yeah. um, but yeah, everything I've done with, I've always been writing, whether it's, uh, screenwriting, comedy writing, my own mess. I keep in a journal where I don't pressure myself to have any structure or anything. It's just brain droppings. And I've always had notebooks and always kept something going. And it's fun. Now those, those have all found a way to, filter into songwriting right just a lot more affordable than making a movie <laughs> yeah oh yeah yeah no like yeah. to make an album oh. compared to making a film it's a astronomic yeah. difference like it, the albums yeah. are way more but like that yeah. it, it's it's that's really interesting because like just even the like the, the, how you explain kind of analyzing how the drums work kind of had those writing motifs and like coming from like yeah. a family of that and being around that like, uh, I've been trying lately to dive into that and understand, like, I know screenwriting is a very specific format, and, like, 
it, it has to be in this way right. and like like how you're saying you're you're describing and I feel like a screen a screen uh, screenplay was going to have more description than a song like that would be taking the song would be hacking right. hacking away at that and trying to like cuz it songwriting is really interesting cuz you only get like a certain amount of space to describe something in a way that's clear and impactful, at least to the yeah. emotion, which is already vague. Right. So like, right. Right. Uh, and th th to do that in like, it's, isn't easy. Like it takes a little, like, oh. so when you're like, do you have like a, I guess like a, a practice for, for songwriting? Uh, yes. Yes. And no, I mean, I've got, um, once, once I have a, a, a draft, laid out, I guess I would, I'd say that I, I do have a, I spend a lot of time rereading what I've already written. Okay. And it's what fascinates me is, you know, and, uh, and, and, and I laugh about it a lot. Like in the moment of inspiration, when I'm spitting out a bunch of lyrics, it feels like, Oh, this is great. Everything is great. I'm really on fire today. And I'll let it sit and I'll come back and read it two or three days later. And I don't know what I was thinking. You know, it's like, maybe it's not any good. Uh, and it's always funny to me. So when, when you kind of go back and soberly look at something um, and, and, and really reinvestigate it and ask yourself, do I need to rewrite this? Have I thought this through? Or do I just need to throw this in the trash? You know, uh, maybe the thing that I'm really good at doing as a songwriter is recognizing what I call a false start. And knowing, knowing that what I thought was a good idea just isn't a good idea to, to, yeah. to finish the song. And, I, and I'll throw it in the trash and I'll move on. Um, another little technique that, that's always helpful to me when I'm revisiting something I've written is uh, the screenwriting rule of show me, don't tell me. Can you read a sentence and are you showing someone, are you giving them a visual image? Can they see it in their mind when they read the sentence? Or are you telling them what's happening? You know, listeners and readers don't want to be told how to feel. They want to see something or understand that a certain event is happening by the way that you're telling the story and then come to their own conclusions about how it makes them feel. Um, I try to never use the word feel because, you know, I feel sad today or, you feel this way when you do this. Uh, that's an example of, I'd, you know, telling someone what's happening. Well, they, they have no way of experiencing it with you if you're not showing them. So it's possible to look at every sentence you write and say, you know, is this a show kind of sentence or am I telling someone? Am I, am I reporting to people an event, you know, in a journalistic way? And you know, in the end, it really gets down to the writer's discretion, uh, you know, if it works or not. Um, but it's funny, I guess, you know, my process with songwriting, uh, relating it back to drums, is I play, I play guitar and piano well enough to write a song. I'm not a hotshot on guitar who can jump up at a blues jam and blow folks away. I don't, I, you know, but drums, that's, that's what I've, develop my expertise with and something I do when I realize I've got an idea for a song, maybe a section or a whole song written. The first place I go is I get behind my drums and I just sing the song and drum to it. And 
in my head, I can hear the chords. I can hear what's going on. You don't need a guitar or piano to write a song. If you've listened to albums your whole life, you hear the chords. You might not know what they are yet, but you can hear the song. You know what it means to go from the one chord to the four chord probably. You know what it means to go from the four chord up to the five chord. You know what those shifts feel like, and in pop music, those are the most common. Uh, but I go straight to the drums, and I figure out you know, the, kick, the relationship of the kick and the snare drum with what the vocal is doing with the phrasing. And I realized, well, I'm able to do something with that that a lot of songwriters take a long time to get to. A, a song usually lives with a songwriter all alone with that person and their guitar for a long time before they ever sit down with a drummer. And I think a drummer is, in a way, every song's first producer, even if you're not in that role. The drums, uh, I feel, they put a frame around the song you know it's like you got your lyrics and your chords and everything but the drums are kind of like putting a nice frame around a beautiful picture and so i don't know if it's an advantage or just something that i'm able to do faster than other songwriters i get to a point where i'm putting that frame around my picture pretty quickly mm, okay. and i can yeah. see the and i feel like i can see the finish line and i know pretty quickly if i've got something that i'm, I'm pretty confident other people will like and so that's how I, I write songs. I string, you know, and it's, it confuses a lot of my songwriter friends they don't, who come from the piano or the guitar. They always think, well, do you write the melody before the lyrics or, well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Back to the thing. I don't care how I begin. I really just care about how I finish. Sometimes I do hear a melody or a certain chord change. Usually it's lyrical. Yeah. I, I, I always writing and not everything I write is going to become a lyric. But I always ask myself if it could. And, and then I find a way. It's fun to find something, you know, I've written, you know, recently or a long time ago in an old notebook and see if I can put it down with some chords below it. And, and, and a lot of times that's how some of my songs have come together. So it's a lot of trial and error. I don't have a system that I go through per se, but... You know, I'm a big fan of doing homework and, and learning from the masters. Uh, there's a great book out there. I've, this record, I feel, has there's been a leap in songwriting skills from my first album. I'm, I'm, I'm hap very happy with my first album, but I just feel like there's been some growth with songwriting. I've put a lot more time in, into getting better at writing songs. Uh, there's a book out by songwriter uh, uh, Jimmy Webb uh, on songwriting that I read, I read it three times in between uh, my first and second record, and it had a huge impact on how these songs turned out. You know, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I like to privately get very academic about it. Okay. You know, it's yeah. this is a, it's a serious skill that there's always room for improvement, and so I, I'm interested in learning how other songwriters think. How do they do what they do? How can I maybe adopt some of that and, and do it myself? But I think it's also important to just go into a room with an idea and struggle. And maybe, you know, I'll, I'll walk into a room, my, my studio here right now, and say, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to leave until I finish this verse. Yeah. You know, is it uh, sit down in a chair. <laughs> do you set, like, as far as, like, are you like, okay, I have to do a verse, or I have to do a verse in a court, yeah. like small goals? Sometimes, yes. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, it's what I like about piecing a song together is, and because I was a kid who grew up with vinyl, I used to love and sit and look at the lyrics mm. on the big yeah, yeah. album. And so the way I started understanding songs was by how the lyrics look on a page. Huh. And it's yeah. always shocking to me with, it's always shocking to me if I love a song for a certain period of time. And then I look at the lyrics for the first time on a page. It's sometimes fascinating how, how little is there. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's that, that's the intimidating part. I've always, it's a lot easier to write a thousand words than it is to write 200. And, um, there's a great documentary to that point, uh, recently on, on Iggy pop. Yeah. Who I love. Yeah. I love, I mean, you're, you're a Cleveland guy. I mean, like Mich I grew I was born in Michigan and, uh, I, I love everything about the Stooges. I have all of Iggy's stuff. I, I, I love everything he's about. I heard him say something really interesting about how he approaches songwriting. And he said, you know, like when you're in the fifth grade and your teacher says, you know, write a, write a little assignment on, what I did for my summer vacation in 30 words or less. And his mindset is, well, that's what we should do with songs. Can yeah. I write a song in 30, 40, 50 words or less? And we really do have to think that way because we don't, it's a lot to ask. I mean, all we're asking for is three minutes of someone's time. Right. That's a lot to ask for. And it's a lot easier than I laugh at it because, you know, I used to write screenplays and I'd ask, Hey, will you read 130 pages that I worked on for two years? It's real hard. <laughs> yeah. Hey, think yeah. of it. No, it's hard to get someone to read 130 pages, let alone, you know, make, making a movie, you got to look someone in the eye and say, by the way, can I have $20 million to shoot this recording music? This, Hey, I need three minutes. And you know, anywhere from 500 to a thousand bucks to record a song. <laughs> right. Know? So, um, I'm, I'm having, I'm having a lot of fun with this. I wish I got into this sooner, but, um, yeah. So where I, 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 I digress. I forgot where I was. Oh going no, it's all right. It, that was, that was really insightful. Um, because like I've talked with, uh, some songwriters, um, do you know, uh, Steve, uh, Steve Dawson? He's a cat. From, I do uh, not. Okay. He's a cat from Illinois. Um, but just, and I've been p trying to like, cause I've been reading a bunch of songwriting books myself and just trying to develop a, a practice of it. Right. And, uh, yeah. so I just, it's, I find it fascinating that you just get behind the kit and you feel you're because as a drummer and there's also, I've talked with quite a few drummers, like, uh, it's kind of like you're behind this, this machine that's running everything and you get to oversee everything. Right. So I've noticed there's right. a lot of my friends who will start behind the kit. They'll go and like write their own songs and I can't help but think when you're in that seat overseeing all that, it's kind of just the process yeah. of that. And like what more exciting I, next step than the kind of like pitch the song. Um, so yeah. you get a very unique perspective of it and like the write and feel that right. out like that. That's, that's really cool. <laughs> like, because yeah. you can have a song that can mold into any type of style of song, chords and melodies are all, the genre is determined. I feel by rhythm. And like, yeah. Um, so that that's yeah. really really interesting and cool how you approach it. Uh, and another thing with the with the Iggy Pop, like he, uh, I talked with Mike Watt, and Watt had this uh, philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> Are you have you talked to him at all? I know you're working with Howard, so you probably. <laughs> um, I'm gonna talk to Mike Watt in early February. I can't wait. Sick. He's yeah. the coolest yeah. nicest guy. <laughs> 
Oh, great. He had this bit that uh, he did about uh, how Iggy gave advice to the band. And, like, Iggy was like, as long as you um, hit the intro, doesn't matter what's in the middle, as long as we end. Like, and, like, kind of what you said, like, kind of encompassed that. And that's badass. Um, yeah. So, uh, kind of t- another perspective kind of shift, you acted in a film. And like, so what's that yeah. like? What's that like from from writing to being in the uh, being on the other end of it? Like, and the same with like, uh, I musically related, like being behind the kit, you know, and playing the role and then writing the role. It's kind of like an inverse yeah. uh, that you've done in different ways. So, what was that experience like acting? You're that's absolutely correct. You know, um, well, the difference is acting is the only art form that works backwards. Mm. think about it like when when an actor is handed a script and they have the and they've got the job and they're going to play the character well the outcome has already been decided right okay yeah i think the hardest the hardest thing for actors to do is in order to tell the story correctly the actor in front of the camera or on stage has to behave as if they don't know the outcome even though they do because they read the script right when you write a script or a song, you're looking at a blank page or you're looking at one verse or 10 pages. You don't have it finished and you don't know the outcome. Same thing with someone just painting a picture on a canvas. It's not finished, it's a blank canvas. They don't know the outcome. I can't think of any other art form where the creative person comes to it and they're told the outcome and they're also told you have to act as if you don't know the outcome. That's probably the hardest thing actors do that maybe we don't think about. Um, I, I fell into playing different roles and characters um, right around the time I mentioned when there were a lot of low-budget independent films being made. I was living in San Francisco. A lot of friends, um, musicians, comedians, actors, we just all sort of ran together. And, and uh, some folks said, you should go, hey, this guy's making an indie film. You'd be great for this role. It'll be a lot of fun. You should do it. And I went and did it, and it was a lot of fun. And uh, that was the beginning of how I fell into, you know, showing up here and there, playing a character. And um, it's really just another form of storytelling, you know. But but like I said, it's you're coming at it from a different at a different point in time, and and you have to approach it differently than a writer who has a blank page. Uh, and it's all in a, in an interesting way landed back to the skills I learned then. They're they've found their way somehow when I'm looking at a blank page, and I've got a verse and a chorus and a verse in the chorus, and I don't know how I'm going to finish this song. I don't know if I need a bridge. I don't know if it should be a guitar solo. I have no idea what I'm going to say for the third verse. You know, um, I've never written a song where I didn't hit that wall. Right. Nothing. Nothing, you know, I, I, I've heard a lot of songwriters, some, some like to talk about how many songs they've written or how fast they wrote a song. I've never understood how that matters or how that's important, you know, but I'm pretty blunt about uh, there are days it's easy and, and there are days it's hard. And, and I try to continue writing on the days that it's hard. I try to continue writing on the days that I don't feel inspiration. Mm. Uh, that's, that yeah. to me is the trick to getting, to getting more done and getting more accomplished. I, I, it's, it's a job. 
and we don't always feel like going to work. And to sit down and write a song when you're not feeling the inspiration, you'd surprise yourself what you do. You know, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I write, I try to spend time writing every day. I've really never finished writing a song after 7 a.m. <laughs> I'm one of these weird I, early risers. Yeah. I get up and, and, you know, by seven or eight o'clock in the morning, I, 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 I've probably put about two hours of time into just different things I'm writing, different things I'm working on, or I spend a lot of time rereading stuff, like I said, but it, it really, it's, it's really about the time what someone's willing to put in. And when someone does that, then they know what I'm talking about. It's almost like, I don't know if I can go down an academic list of here's the skills you need to know those skills are out there and they're, they're in all the books and they're, they're very important, but there's something that a songwriter can only understand if they try to regularly treat it like a job and try to write for, you know, one, one hour a day. It's amazing what, what you can accomplish at the end of the year, that'd be 365 hours spent on your songwriting. Mm. You know, that's a lot. And it's, it's not a lot to ask one hour a day. You know, I, I do, I mean, I do a little trick with myself when I'm having a hard time getting inspired. I'll just tell myself, well, just, just go sit down and write for 20 minutes and then quit walk away, but just get 20 minutes at least. Most of the time, by the time I hit that 20 minute mark, I'm on a roll <laughs> and I'll put in 30 or 40 minutes, but I tricked myself into sitting down. Because maybe, you know, I'm a person who thinks, well, if I'm going to work, that means like five or eight hours. It doesn't have to be. You can get a lot done in 20 minutes. Right. You can write a great, you know, the great opening lines I, uh, that I think in, that have been a part of a lot of great songs, they probably just came to someone and it was one little moment, but it's the difference between who writes it down, right? you know, who, how do you act on it? Yeah. It's like Keith Richards just goes, you know, he's got his antenna that goes up and all he's got to do is catch the ideas, you know, cause they're always out there. It's really about, are we paying attention with our antennas? And the biggest lie I tell myself is, Oh, I'll remember that. I don't have to write it down. <laughs> I mean, I, it, you have to write these things down, man. When you know, you hear, when you hear something that you know is a great line for a chorus, a great opening line for a song or what you've got to write it down. You will forget it. At least yeah, I will speak yeah, for myself. No, de- definitely. Yeah. I, I definitely relate to that. And like, I don't know, like trying to, trying to do that pa- practice and just uh, hone in is something I've personally been working on as well. Just spend an hour a day. Um, yeah. And I, th- I think that's, I think that's a big part of any, any uh, creative endeavor is just the amount of like work as far as your end putting into it. And I think that gets right. difficult for people because you really that work usually doesn't amount to anything at that point. Right. It, it down the line it does. You know, like oh that verse you really hacked out that didn't fit with that chord progression or that chorus you came up with two months ago is perfect for right here. Good thing you kept hacking away right. at something different. So that's uh, yeah. really uh, really insightful um, bits we've gone over so far. Um, can I? Yeah. Um, to kind of like pick your mind a little about about writing with a different like intent like. Um, you were roommates with Pat and Oswald and, and Mitch Hedberg. Yeah. How did like I was. living with comedians yeah. and cause I, I've listened to a fair amount of like comedians talk about their process. Um, like 
how did living around I mean I don't know if they were crazy to live around or the times you know maybe they weren't as like work focused at that point but like living around oh. guys like that what what was some of like kind of the writing practices that you've observed from them that maybe have fallen into your music you'd be surprised how hard they work um and I will tell you I I, I reflect on my time being Patton's roommate and and, and Mitch in uh in this way Patton especially uh the opportunity to room with him when I did um it was it was in San Francisco we met through the whole open mic stand-up comedy culture in San Francisco I really enjoyed comedy writing and would hop up and do stand-up and um uh, but I compared to this I was like someone in their sophomore year of college and Patton was at a level of someone finishing their PhD in grad school. He had been doing stand-up when I met him for already for about 10 or 11 years. And rooming with Patton, I, I always point back and say, that's how I really learned how to be a writer and what I should be doing. Patton never sat me down and lectured me or gave me tips. But what happened was I was 24, 25 years old, just thrilled to be living in San Francisco, having a great time, frequently with Mitch Hedberg. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, I'd come home from bouncing around San Francisco. I was a small town Midwestern kid, just enamored with a big city, all the interesting people. And uh, come into the apartment, Patton's bedroom door is closed. There's a little light on at the bottom of the door, and I hear the typewriter going. This was before the internet. Every time I walked by his room, I could, I could hear him in there working. The, and, and, and it just kind of hit me like, oh, that's what I should be doing. You know, it hit me. I'm not, he's putting, he's putting in the work. He's putting in the time. I'm not putting in the time. I, I'm a guy who has some stuff I've written. Some of it works. But he's, he was, in, in a sense, he was the, the, the friendship that showed me you know, heart and soul, as much as I was doing stand-up and doing well, and I love comedy just as much as anyone else, I learned through him, oh, I'm not, I'm not a comedian who eats, sleeps, and breathes in uh, comedy. That's Patton. I was a musician who could do comedy. You know, I was, I was a musician who loved comedy. Uh, I was playing drums with different people around San Francisco and then hanging out with, with the comedians, too. But being that close to Patton, and um, just seeing how hard he worked was all I needed to know that I was not putting in the time and I need to up my game. Same thing with Mitch Hedberg. I will tell you, when, when you watch, if anyone's a fan of Mitch Hedberg, they know this is a guy, talk about doing something in 30 words or less. Right. He comes up with jokes that make you double over laughing. They're unforgettable. They're the kind of jokes that you go tell your friends. They're so well-written, you remember them. And they're all about 10 seconds long. Now, there's other comedians who go into long diatribes, and they can do, you know, five minutes about trying to meditate or something, you know, and, but it's just, it's like a long speech, and it works. But Mitch was actually a classic old-school joke writer. And his jokes, it just amazes me how he could remember all those jokes and do a 60-minute routine when most of his jokes are not lengthy stories. They're little sound bites of a moment of a brilliant thought 
that he twisted and twisted and twisted until he found the funniest outcome. And Mitch showed me once how he writes, and this impacts actually my lyrics. Now, he showed me a whole page of a joke that he was working on, and it just looked like a guy who scribbled out a very long paragraph. And his next point was, see, now this is too much to stay on a stage. And he goes through the paragraph and crosses out every single word that he doesn't need and asks himself, does the joke still work? And so his whole bottom line is so that every single word, every syllable that comes out of his mouth matters and has something to do with the point of the joke he's trying to tell. He, he never had any unnecessary extraneous words in his material. And it wasn't improvised. It wasn't something he, he put the work in and the time into the writing and, you know, the subtractive quality. He would overwrite and overwrite and then just go in and chop out, cut away all the fat that he didn't need. And I, and it was a simple, it was a simple lesson he taught me just showing me that. And, and that's what I do now. I will reread all my lyrics and I'll realize, oh, there's 20 words in here that I don't need. And it's going to flow better. It's going to sound, it's going to be better music for the listener. Less is more. That's, that, that's really, that's super, that's the place to be with. It's like the play, the spot to be at. Like it's, it's interesting with songwriting, how much of a, the influence of everything else is where that kind of hones in. Like, Hanging out with comedians, yeah. learning how like how the screen uh, like write screenplays and like it's amazing how like all that factors in. What I think makes it dif- much more difficult is like the music aspect of it in a way. Like yeah, like it's it's really hard because right. it's it, that's very Hemingway, um, Mitch Mitch's approach and just even like for songwriting. You know, what I mean, you're trying to like convey something in six words or less or like um, I think yeah, it was six right. word stories. Uh, like, um, that that's pretty profound. Um, but to kind of bounce on where you kind of took it, when did you like? So as far as like working with drums, right? That's a very like yeah. comfortable thing to like. I got this right because you know how it goes, right? You know where you need to land. Um, but singing isn't, and like singing is something you gotta yeah. listen back to a bunch. Like we kind of talked about vocal takes a little bit, but like when did you get comfortable enough? Like it's cool that you're like oh. They're singing. I need to be able to hit that high note or my low note or my. I need to contribute to the the choir of the band. Um, but that's a whole nother like skill set of like learning how to breathe and how to hold yourself. And like personally, yeah. I've had a very like I constantly record myself and oh, I hate it. Constantly do it again. It's all right, you know. <laughs> what was that uh-huh. process like for you? Because you have a very yeah, unique was- timbre. Sorry, you have a very unique timbre okay. and a great voice, and it it sticks hey. out. And um, so anyway, what was that process like? My Real briefly, my take on singing is, um, you know, maybe I, I feel more, pe- there's so many people out there who could be interesting singers who have never considered it. Uh, you know, we, we all might have some type of interesting sound we have to offer. And my, my thing has been trying to find out what, what, what is that for me? Um, I've always, I, I knew that I always enjoyed singing um i was a kid who i feel lucky in the 70s i was a part of maybe the golden era of public school there was a lot of there was more funding for the arts and and i had some great music teachers who you know we'd go to music class and we'd sing and and to my memory of it 
as little kids, it wasn't something we hated doing. We had fun. You know, I, and it was because of my teacher. I remember she, she made it fun. She made us feel like it's okay to be, you know, for boys to sing. It's, 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 there's nothing to be embarrassed about. This is fun. And so I never perceived it as this thing to be shy about or to not do, but to find my own, you know, we all have our own natural range. Um, I have put a little bit of work into, there's a, a great, vocal coach in Nashville that I've spent some time studying with. Uh, her name's Laura Donahue. She's uh, the, the bass player on all my recordings is Chris Donahue. He plays in Emmylou Harris's band. He's worked with Robert Plant and Elvis Costello. Chris's wife, Laura, is one of the most sought after Nashville vocal coaches. And I went in and took some lessons from her. And the greatest thing about finding someone who's an expert at a skill you want to improve on is you don't remember a hundred percent of the lesson, but they usually will say one little nugget mm -hmm. that you never forget that might. And for me, this alleviated a lot of self-consciousness and anxiety about my own singing. And she, I, we can always feel like we're supposed to be great or we're supposed to hit this high note. And I remember her saying, you know, the energy that you put into singing, it shouldn't be any more effortful than when you're talking. Mm. And I think some of us feel that when we sing, that we're maybe not really singing if we don't feel like we're trying really hard. And I've learned how to shift my brain back into just constantly going, oh, come on, relax, relax. This shouldn't be any more effortful than just sitting talking to someone. And hopefully the impact of listening to a singer who, all the great singers have figured that out. Right. And the one guy who, who, who I study and love is, I mean, when you listen to Frank Sinatra do what he does, how relaxed he is. Yeah. I mean, that guy is laid back behind the beat. He can stretch a word out and still fall on one, on beat one. And it's about, you know, really consciously trying to catch myself from becoming self-conscious and judging myself and just get on with it. And, uh, and to have an attitude of, well, yeah, I want it to be as good as it can possibly be, but no, I, I'm never going for perfection. If something's, just flat out bad of course i don't use it but um no i mean i i do a thing too when i record my own vocals something that's maybe a little interesting is when i've been a drummer with a songwriter before we record their album we've usually been jamming together for a number of years we've played a number of shows we've had a lot of rehearsals and we've built the songs i work differently yeah i i'm very much just just like a private songwriter the first time I sing my song is usually the first take on the recording. Hmm. And I'm trying to find what, what, how is this going to work? I don't have a band that I rehearse with regularly. I don't spend a year developing a song in a practice room with a, a guitarist and a drummer. And, a, you know, first time I hear myself sing a song is after I've already tracked the drums. I've done a demo piano. And now I'm singing the vocals. It's in a way it's, it is, a, it's a rehearsal. Okay. Take yeah. one, take one for me is a rehearsal. And what's always, what's funny is sometimes that's the take. And, and uh, you know, so, and not all, not all the time, but uh, it's, it's just, it's, and that's, that's what's nice about Pro Tools and digital. And I'm not burning up tape. I can really rehearse in Pro Tools and I can hear it back. And, and I'm pretty, I'm brutally honest with myself if I'm unhappy with the way it's going, but 
you know, it's it, it's a great education of figuring out where I'm having trouble with hearing pitch, uh, what I need, things I need to work on, what I need to change. Um, but yeah, it's it's a great way to do it. But um, no, but I've I've always just really enjoyed really enjoyed singing. Just it, it I always feel happier when I'm done singing a song. I mean, I, I you know, it releases a lot of endorphins. That's what right. it does when you're coming right. from the right place in your diaphragm. Um, when you, when you do that correctly and you're not coming from the tones in your head, you know, there's head tones and chest tones when you're really coming from that lower part of your body. Um, when I'm all done singing a song, I'm like, my mood is elevated. That makes sense. You know, there's so many like breathing exercises people do to change their mood. And they're like, yeah, I've, it's, that's really interesting. Cause like, well, like how you're saying, you got those different type of tones and places you can sing out of, but like the yeah. bottom, they you always want that support no matter which one you're doing. Right. From. That's a, that's and really, so, that's really cool. <laughs> and sometimes we're not aware, you know, we're not aware that we're coming from, a higher tone in our head. It, we can be doing all types of things without having that, that, that awareness, you know, right. but to always go back and, and, and check in. Uh, it's nice to know certain skills, you right. know, that these, see, to, to me, I'm a guy who writes songs and I'm capable of singing my own songs. I, I, I don't feel comfortable yet saying I am a singer. Freddie Mercury is a singer. <laughs> Patty LaBelle is a singer. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Um, Steve Perry from Journey, <laughs> yeah, he yeah. can sing. <laughs> I can't do that. I can't do that. <laughs> you know, well, it's it's different. You know, what I mean, the the Flash is in somewhere else, and they got a good way of combining the song and the Flash, and like, and yeah. that's you know, yeah. you don't need it. You don't need it to convey the song. But no. um, uh, did you ever um, so kind of spending time in Ohio? Were you familiar with the Numbers Band? The numbers band. Yeah. I, I'm not no. Okay. No. Yeah, the first song on Bullies in the Backyard gave me that vibe. And it's just the percussion oh, cool. and your and your vocal delivery. The numbers band is this yeah. band from Kent, like uh and they were a big deal oh. back in the seventies. Like some guys from Devo were in, in and were in the uh, numbers band and then went their own way. Oh. And like they've been hitting hard since. But uh so oh, I've got to figure this out. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll send you a link when we're done. Um I love it. Yeah, but it really rhythmic based, and I was like, that first track made me. Th I'm like, in I don't know, trying to put it together. But uh, so to kind of talk about this new record, because man, I really appreciate picking just picking your mind. I'm I'm super excited, just like learning how people think about being creative, and like that that is a conversation that never grows old because everyone has a new approach to it, and everyone's a unique right. person, a unique learner, like how we started at the beginning. So with this batch of tunes. I, it's all like kind of been like under the seven year lawsuit. Do you want to get into that? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, um, you know, I have a son with learning differences. He, he, um, we were, we were in public school until he was at the end of second grade. Okay. Uh, he was on an IEP. You, you, you mm -hmm. likely know what yep. that means an individualized those. education program. And, uh, you know, when I, when I talk about our case against, Nashville Public Schools. I, 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 the first thing I always point out is the key word is the letter I in IEP, individualized. Um, what we experienced was individualized. It was solely about my son. Absolutely nothing about our case was us versus the global concept of public school. 
Right. You know, this was about, uh, my son's case was about three very simple things. Uh, who my son is based on clinical diagnosis from experts. Mm -hmm. Number two, how my son learns. Number three, what my son needs in order to learn. And it's that simple. And unfortunately, as much as we did all we could do to make public school work, um, we, we, we gave it a number of years and it, it landed at a place where based on the whole overall experience and all the evidence, we were able to argue that he cannot receive an appropriate education in public school uh, on top of that without getting down in the mud or, 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 or going negative on any individuals that were our opponents. Uh, I can just say we were able to prove uh, multiple federal violations uh, that occurred in the time he was in public school. Uh, largely, I feel our argument was won in federal court on a Sometimes you can win an argument based on what they did not do for his education right. versus things that they did do and how, whether they did something or did not do something in the end, it was about what, what harm was caused. And, um, we were able to prove that it, it was, it was causing harm. He was regressing uh, a lot of time and years and effort was lost. Um, and bottom line, every child in America is entitled to a free and appropriate public education. And we were able to prove that was not happening for yeah. our son. Uh, and when you can prove that, and, and it's a very high bar a family has to get over in order to prove that. And, and it should be, it should be that way. Uh, after proving that, when you can prove that the, the, the federal laws say that a, a public school has to relocate your child to, a private setting or a, pro a school that can appropriately educate him. And um, school districts will, they will fight to the death to not let you win that argument. Mm -hmm. And I think the bottom line is uh, they don't want to set a precedent. They don't want this happening in their community. They don't want it getting around in the community. And that's, that's not why we did it. And the bottom line, I'm, my job is to take care of my son. Right. And that was our agenda. Um, so in a way, we were fighting for my son's education, school districts fighting to make sure this, this doesn't get around or this, we don't set this precedent. Um, it took seven years. Um, we lost the first round on the state level. It was a Metro City judge judging Metro City schools. Yeah. So you can, you can imagine how uncomfortable that yeah. made us. I, I read the first judge's ruling. There were over, there were well over 30 factual errors. Uh, we didn't know, we didn't know who this judge was writing this ruling about. <laughs> like, whose kid is this? Yeah. You know, it was, uh, and we appealed in, in the federal courts. Uh, we, we made, took a lot of risks. I mean, as a sold, sold, sold vintage guitars that I would have loved to have held on to for years. Uh, I went and got a job at Home Depot in order to pay legal fees in order to, uh, we had to, we, we, we pulled our son out of public school and put him in this private school. Right. Before the case was concluded, before it was decided, we knew he needed this, whether or not we win or lose the case. Right. So it was very clear to us. We were showing, Hey, win or lose, this is what he needs. And we're, we're willing to put, put our money where our mouth is, even if we lose. And, um, 
fortunately, we, we, we didn't lose after this whole seven-year journey. But back to the music and the songs and the albums, underneath the umbrella of that yeah. seven years, well, it became songwriting, writing and recording, going into my home studio and piecing all these things together. Uh, it, it just it really became a, a, a great way to take a break from our case, to, to, to give my mind a, a break and uh, do something that I enjoy that's rewarding. But every song in some way was birthed at some moment in that seven-year mm, okay. uh, cycle where something tense was happening. There was some kind of conflict. And, I'm, and you know, uh, listeners need to know, it's, it, no, it is, as you know, it's not 10 songs about special education. It's not no. 10 songs specifically about my son. But, you know... It's that point of when you have, you know, a lot going on, maybe you're overwhelmed. Um, there's always some piece of gold to mine. Uh, if, if you just, and I was someone who had a regular habit of writing down what I was thinking, what I was feeling in, in a notebook. Maybe it'll become a lyric. Maybe it won't. But it's just something I do to clear out my mind. It, it's just something It's always made me feel healthier. And um, I knew that the reasons I came to Nashville, we moved here from Los Angeles in 2010 and I'm thinking oh, I'll play gigs and do sessions. And there's a normal two to three year period when you're a new member of a music community where you just got to kind of sit the bench and focus on getting to know people. Right. And I knew that, I knew that moving here and I was excited actually for that phase because it's nice. There's no pressure. No one expects me to be a session drummer who's working all the time if I'm brand new in town. But once this case really hit the fan, it was very clear to me uh, that not only will this case take up a lot of my time and attention in order to do it right, but I had to take care of my son along the way and, and be a dad and uh, make sure he had the help he needed at home with his homework and, and, and all of his studies. And there isn't anything I would have rather been doing with my time. That's exactly what I wanted to make the priority at the time. And uh, however, the sacrifice I had to make was a lot of the things I came to Nashville planning to do as a musician just had to go up on the shelf. But what I, but what I was able to control was going into my home studio and writing a song. You know, that's another thing I love about songwriting. You don't have to ask anyone's permission to do it. Being a session drummer, I have to get chosen. Right. I have to be invited, you know, to, to be a working drummer, you have to get invited. They have to look at you among a bunch of other drummers and they go, I want you. And you have to get that phone call. Well, I don't have to ask anyone's permission. I don't have to get chosen to sit down and write a song. And I really liked how that felt <laughs> after years of doing things that required being chosen, trying to sell a screenplay, auditioning to play a character in a film, uh, being a drummer against 20 other drummers for the job. It's always a dogfight. Yeah. 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 And sometimes that competition is, is really a good thing because it, it increases how hard I'm willing to work to be chosen. Sometimes I get tired of being evaluated <laughs> against other people. I don't enjoy music when it reduces itself to being a competitive sport right. and we're viewed as who's better, or who does it, you know, uh, on one hand, that's a that's normal. On the other hand, after a long time of doing this, I try to avoid uh, that mindset. 
but it's really fun doing something that, that I can do on my own. I don't have to ask for any permission. No one's picking me. I can just do it. Right. And that's a new thing. It's a, it's a whole new thing for me. And, uh, so. And the it's, only competition is you. Like the only one who's saying this song yeah. isn't good enough is you and, or that yeah. could be put better. So that's like the healthy, like spin on it. Yeah. Um, right. I totally agree with what you said about every kid deserving the right education. And I'm happy you guys yeah. won that case. And it sucks that you had to fight that fight to begin with. So, uh, um, right. uh, yeah. th- I'm glad it all panned out. And like, one thing I wanted to point out, like it was listening through this record. I listened to it uh, before before reading about it, just to, like to have like just oh, cool. just hear what it's about. And like it's interesting after reading about it, it seemed like there's a lot of points in in some of these songs that were kind of like bittersweet. You know, you get the trophy, but your name's spelled wrong. You're living <laughs> off the mayonnaise sandwich. You know what I mean? Like, like I, there was such like a, I thought those are such, <laughs> or even just like the top shelf of the fridge, you know, just like bits where like, those are such like unique. Like I can see the song phrase and like, kind of like how you, you said, how does this make you feel as opposed to feeling this way? You know, I think uh, yeah. you did an amazing job with those tunes and like putting it in that way and knowing a little bit about this, like kind of like madness that was going on that bittersweet thing makes sense um is that kind of like what was that kind of like with uh not to compare or put narratives to it but with those kind of like oh we got somewhere but we didn't or ah, was that kind of what was a general vibe for some of these songs like the bittersweetness i I guess yes i think in some sense that's something i do naturally unconsciously and i've found that that's really what people relate to because we're all imperfect Mm -hmm. if there was one theme if there was one theme i had to say that i i find that i consistently write about unconsciously it's i like failure Mm. i like facing it i like facing my own failures i like admitting my own failures and i like writing about things that have made me feel like well this effort failed or that was a bad experience but the challenge is to look for the silver lining. You know, every song, it's not to say that if it's a sad song that it has to end happy. Right. But there has to be some moment where the perspective shifts or there's a new way of thinking or, or we have a new attitude at the end of the song that's different from the beginning of the song. Otherwise, why did we write the song? Right, right. <laughs> you know? um, but it is very much for me um, about... Coming up with themes that, you know, in the end, I do ask myself, is this, is this all about me? Is this self-centered? Or am I expressing myself in a way that other people will relate to? People who I don't know. Because the, the final destination is people I've never met. I want, you know, that's who we want to hear our songs. And it has to be about them. There ha- it has to be written in a way where they hear it, and in some way they go, that's my life. I get that. And I'm I'm really excited. First of all, thanks for listening to the the, the song so closely. It's a great um, record. A song like, it's easy to do. <laughs> a song, thank you. A, a, a song like "Top of the Fridge." That song started uh, like my little world in my house. The one place of my home I control <laughs> is the top of the fridge. It's where I it's where I put my wallet, my keys, everything. It's my little world. My son is still too short to reach up there. My wife is too short to reach up there. It's my place. Don't touch it. And I just really thought, well, this is kind of interesting. What if I write a song 
song called The Top of the Fridge. I just always said, well, that's a good title. That's how the song started. All I knew is I had a title. I wanted to write a song called Top of the Fridge. What's that going to be about? And it was almost like an assignment in an English class. You know, you just make a list of everything on the top of my fridge. And, blah, 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 blah. and then I slowly found out as I recorded, everyone who played on the song loved it. And they go, hey, I keep stuff at the top of my fridge too. And, <laughs> and the fun part about the song now is hearing from people, just everyone's, you know, that's kind of a unique place in everyone's home where they're keeping something up there. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and my song definitely shows the list of that's, that's my place for all my special products. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, it's a fun thing to, to take something that tiny and how much, to what extent can I blow it up? And the fun thing for writing this song about me, I had to finish the song, the whole point about where do we go in that third verse. And in my third verse of that, I realized, Oh yeah, I got my dad. It, it, it became a song about my father and my fascination as a kid with the top of the fridge because that's where he kept all of his stuff. And I really would get a, a step stool and go up there when he wasn't home and look through all his stuff and just see what is at the top of the fridge with yeah. this dude, you know? <laughs> and, and so to take it, the third verse is kind of like a flashback to my childhood. And uh, it took me a while to get that idea. I mean, believe me, that song sat for a long time, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and, and didn't know how I was going to finish it. Um, but so, yeah, that's you know, awesome. it's, that's, well, it, that's, that's the you feeling, you know, well, how do you feel? And like, not you personally, but the listener, how do you relate to it the without listen. being told? Um, it's interesting with like that one failure. I always find like working with kids, they're terrified to do something wrong. And like, I, yeah. you know what I mean? Like so much, at least, especially now because so much is like broadcasted and, and put on for other people to kind of make judgments. So I think. I think failure is a great thing to support and, and, and yeah. you know what I mean? And get involved with, not just like fear it, but know it and be comfortable with it. Um, yeah. And I think one song in particular that maybe not on the nose states that, but Plan B, the last song, um, <laughs> I thought that was a really interesting yeah. take as far as like people who don't fail. How come? Uh, what, so like what, what kind of brought yeah. that one about? <laughs> Okay, um, Plan B, that, that's a fun song to think. That is a song that came together faster than I thought. I'm always really straight up. If there are some songs that sit in my notebook for a long time and I'm not able to finish them, eventually I do. Sometimes I revisit them two or three years later. Plan B was a song that came together pretty quickly, but uh, it's funny. What you've made me realize is perhaps like, at 50% of whatever it is that influences my songwriting does not come from songwriters. It mm. comes from my history of being around screenwriters and actors and, and, and comedians in, in Los Angeles and basically storytelling. Yeah. Nothing cool. of that includes songwriters and, and what it may. So, and what I learned from Patton and Mitch and being around comedians and just keeping a notebook of all your ideas, even if you, you know, and the point is about a notebook back to failure is, it doesn't have to be perfect. Your notebook and where you write, that's your secret place where you're allowed to screw up big. I had a jazz band director in college who used to yell, uh, North, if you're going to make a mistake, make it loud. <laughs> nice. Was that uh, Raphael? And, uh, pardon? Was that uh, Raphael Garrett? Was that the cat? 
Oh, not Raphael Garrett. It was this was a, a John Garvey. He was the director of the University of Illinois Jazz Band. Okay. And his whole approach was if you're playing your instrument in a with in a, any part of your mind is afraid to screw up, it's going to sound that way. You're going to sound tentative. He just goes, you need to just put, you know, if you're going to fail, fall on your face and fall on your face in a big way. And to, to have that attitude and to know that you're going to survive, you're not going to die and everything, you know, and then by doing that, you're finally going to get to the right outcome, the right way to play your instrument or the right lyric or the, the right way to approach a third verse. Um, you know, so goodness, where were we going? I, I do this all the time. <laughs> I was answering a question and, uh, uh, plan B, <laughs> my point is I had a line in my notebook for a long time. I saw these bumper stickers after I moved to Nashville, you know, people just these, I don't like standard popular phrases that are meant to just kind of wipe away investigating a real problem. The line, God has a plan. Right. Uh, it's frustrating to me when I hear someone say it because in parentheses, I sort of hear God has a plan and I really don't want to talk about this with you. It's too difficult. Yeah. You know, let's just all say God has a plan and we don't really need to look under the hood to see what, what's causing the problem here. And, and, and so just as a writer, I would just look at the, these bumper stickers I'd see on cars that say God has the plan. And, and I just started wondering, well, what, you know, does he have a plan B? You know, what if the plan doesn't, what if the plan doesn't work out and who says that every plan God has, even if it's a first plan that it's going to work, is there a plan B? And so I just had that concept, that idea in, in, in a notebook and I was playing around with it. I was able to realize, oh, this would be a good line for a chorus to fall on. You know, it'd be that great line for the whole song to build up, build up, build up, and then just land on this line. And Back to drum, you know, I tried that out with a shuffle. I tried it out with an upbeat rock song. I tried, and then I found out, you know, that, you know, triplet kind of feel that Plan B has, like a slower, moodier song, that it fit. And I found a way for that one line to fit as, as a line that would land at the end of the chorus. And then with that, I wrote the rest of the song. I wrote the rest of the song around that one line. And, and that's, that's how it all, how it all came to be, you know, and, and it's an example of, it happens to me all the time. I'll start writing a song. I've got no idea what it's going to be when it's done, but I just know that I have a good idea. And, uh, I'm stealing this line from Roger Daltrey in the who he talks about when the who was writing a song, they knew they had a good song as long as the germ of the idea, it was a good idea. And every good song can be whittled down to one little tiny germ of an idea. And if that germ of the idea isn't there, I don't think you can have a good song. Yeah, no, it makes sense. You know, it's it's got to start. There's got to be one tiny little seed planted inside that song that made it grow. And and if it's lacking that, and, and there's a lot of stuff I've recorded with others, you know, that I've witnessed that doesn't have it. But if you've got that, if you've got that one little germ, yeah, then that's that's all you need, right? You know, right. I had that one line: if God, if God has a plan, what's Plan B? And I was able to stretch that out and milk it for for all I could, and keep. To, I just need three minutes, right? Well, that's a, that's a <laughs> that's a potent thought. You know what I mean? That's a, that's yeah. a fairly potent yeah. thought as far as like a conversation can get into. But uh, 
Yeah. Matt, thank you so much for chatting with me. This has been very insightful. Thank you. And uh, I thank you. love diving into your career and the record. Um, is there anything maybe that I didn't bring up during my whole, like, I need to know how the brain works um, thing you'd want to plug oh, right no. now? Oh, no. We're okay. good, man. This has, been a, this has been a pleasure. And I, I would... To, to remind you, I'd love to hear if you can send me a link about the, the numbers is what they're called. The, yeah, the, band the numbers from, band. The, the, yeah, yeah. Is I'll tell you, the, the very first Devo album is yeah. one of my favorites. Yeah. And, uh, just imp- really made me rethink songs and drumming. Right. Well, that's uh, who was in the numbers band. Was the drummer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Okay, so I got to check this out. Awesome. But, no, it's been a real pleasure. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. This has been a lot of fun.